My family is going on week five of isolation. I think I'm doing pretty well. I'm more physically active than I am at school, which isn't saying much. I'm learning more through researching for this podcast than I am through my actual classes. And I'm practicing cello a lot. But when I'm at my most calm, a feeling of anxiety trickles in as I wonder, what's going to happen next? What is the world going to look like when this is over? When is this going to be over? How will things change for me? I'd love to ignore these questions, but the downside of isolation is that I still have a little too much time to think. And thinking about these questions makes me anxious. Anxiety sucks, so I decided to learn about one particular method of dealing with anxiety. Meditation. You're listening to Pandemic COVID-19. I'm Maxfield Rivers, a soon-to-be baby adult, experienced couch potato, and host of this podcast. Today, we're going to talk about anxiety, mindfulness, meditation, and what to do with those pesky people in your house, your family. But first, the news. As of today, April 15th, there are 1.9 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally and 123,000 deaths. In the U.S., there are almost 580,000 confirmed cases and 23,000 deaths. In a globally criticized move, Trump decided to cut funding to the World Health Organization during a pandemic pending an investigation into their work with China. Now that I've stressed you out with my update, everybody take a deep breath in. And now let it out. I was diagnosed with anxiety years ago. I take a medication for it. Mine isn't as severe as many other people I know, but it still has a marked effect on my daily life. Our current situation is everything but ordinary, though. And while I'm doing pretty well most days, some days I struggle to pull myself together. I know a lot of people who are feeling the same way. I know stress or anxiety isn't healthy, and I wanted to know more about why it's so bad and what we can do to minimize it. So on Monday, I called Dr. Heidi Marie Laurent, a psychologist and professor at the University of Illinois who specializes in stress regulation, mindfulness meditation, and close interpersonal relationships. I asked her first what the long-term effects of stress are. I think I'm most aware of the kinds of things that I study, which are about um, how the, the neurophysiology of stress response affects things over time. And we know that this system has adaptive functions, especially in the short term, for being able to respond to threat, but that if you hyperactivate these stress systems um, over time, things like the um, HPA axis is uh, one of the main neuroendocrine responses to stress. Um, sometimes that also activates inflammation in the body over time, that those um, kinds of long-term effects of, of continuing to activate these stress responses, it has this wear and tear over time on um, the neurons and the brain, especially certain areas that are really important for um, kind of higher order thought and memory, like the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus. Um, also that over time you start to kind of wear down aspects of the somatic 
physiology like immunity and metabolism and um, that this can all lead to chronic health conditions like hypertension and metabolic syndrome as well as autoimmune disorders and of course in the brain uh, you know it can make you more prone to things like anxiety and depression that tend to be comorbid with these other kind of uh, physical ailments. I'm going to pause real quick and define a few of these terms because I had no clue about some of the things she was talking about. The HPA axis she mentioned, that's short for hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is the link between the hypothalamus, which controls hormone release, the pituitary gland right below your hypothalamus, which secretes hormones, and the adrenal glands above your kidneys, which release adrenaline, also known as epinephrine, as well as your body's main stress hormone, cortisol. In stress response, the hypothalamus instructs these glands to release epinephrine and cortisol to stimulate your fight-or-flight response. Having these hormones present in your body for too long can cause inflammation, immune suppression, increased blood pressure and blood sugar, metabolic issues, and more. As for those parts of your brain negatively impacted by long-term stress, the prefrontal cortex controls higher-level thought like personality and decision-making, and the hippocampus is vital to memory creation and retrieval so it's bad news if these get damaged. If I left this discussion at that, it'd seem like a hopeless case. But since Dr. Laurent specializes in mindfulness meditation, I decided to find out more about how that works to decrease stress and increase brain function. Over time, I mean, some of the more consistent evidence is that meditators um, tend to strengthen um, both the, the structure and the functional connectivity of certain parts of the brain that are important for uh, regulating attention and awareness and also regulating emotions, including various prefrontal areas, um, anterior cingulate cortex is a, a part of the brain in there that's connected to a lot of both kind of more basic, basic emotional responding centers of the brain and other kind of higher order awareness uh, areas. And also just um, if you do mindfulness meditation in particular, where you're often uh, cued to bring your focus back to body cues and sensations, there's an increase in um, kind of structure and function of the insula, which is involved in kind of awareness of the body and feeding that into your emotional state. Uh, so those are some of the things that that can be enhanced over time and we think is part of what helps you to regulate your your emotions and your stress responses more, uh, more skillfully with mindfulness meditation. Personally, I firmly believe that mindfulness meditation is highly effective at reducing stress. But in case you're not convinced, Dr. Lawrence offered some evidence to back up that point. There's a pretty big body of research and it's growing all the time about um, effects of mindfulness, both dispositional mindfulness, so people who never even meditate may vary, or they do vary in, in how much they naturally bring a kind of open, non-judgmental, present-focused awareness to their experiences, but also certainly effects of engaging in mindfulness training, whether through a formal mindfulness course or otherwise, and, you know, a lot of the strongest effects that we've seen are on things like anxiety and depression. Um, there's also a fair amount of research on neurophysiological stress responsiveness, and that's some of the research that I've been involved in is just showing how um, both 
cultural differences in mindfulness and engaging mindfulness practice may help you to uh, respond to everyday stressors in a more adaptive way that allows you to recover, especially from stress, more quickly. Um, but there's there's a lot more out there. I think my focus has been on mental health and the physiological stress that tends to be associated with that. Even with an abundance of evidence proving that mindfulness meditation works, and even knowing how easy it could be for me to begin practicing, I must admit that I'm very bad at it. I have three mindfulness apps on my phone, and I've used them once each and never again. So clearly, I need to get better at finding motivators to practice meditation and learn how to build it into a daily habit. That's a tough one even for, for people who've been meditating for a long time. Um, it's how do you sustain that because often a lot of other things seem more pressing and it's very easy to um, turn away from meditation, whether because of boredom or something, you know, aversive or difficult comes up in the experience. But I think finding types of meditation or, or entries into it that feel actually rewarding or helpful for you and not holding on to an idea that it has to be a certain way um, can can be helpful for sustaining it. Um, there are a lot of different apps and things that are available online. I think it often is helpful to have some kind of a teacher that you can connect to who can especially help guide you through when you are feeling difficulties or, or disenchantment with uh, the practice that you're doing. Um, but being flexible about what that means for you and uh, that practicing mindfulness may mean formal meditation practice, guided or unguided. It may also mean other things that allow you to uh, be in contact with the present moment in a, in a less um, struggling, defensive kind of way. And so it could be going for a walk and just allowing yourself to notice or it could be something that you're engaging in with another person that is kind of helping to uh, ground in what is going on now. So I, I think part of the key to sustaining any benefits that you might get from mindfulness practice are being uh, flexible about what that means for you and, and looking to what is actually helpful for me at this given time and that that may shift over time. Perhaps the reason I'm so bad at building a habit of mindfulness meditation is because I have too narrow of an understanding of what mindfulness meditation is. Maybe it's more than just sitting down and taking deep breaths, listening to calming sounds on your favorite app. So I asked Dr. Lawrence to give me a broader understanding of what mindfulness meditation really is. So there are certainly many kinds of meditation, and I don't know that I am the expert on all kinds. Um, some are more focused on a particular object or um, aimed at a goal of uh, kind of attaining different levels of consciousness. Uh, mindfulness, I think, is more accessible and immediately perhaps practical for a lot of people because uh, it doesn't demand that you attain any particular level of awareness or focus. It just 
is an instruction to come back to what is actually happening in the here and now and, and with it much as possible, a, a sort of openness to what is happening. And this can be practiced um, and often is practiced through certain um, specific kind of, whether sitting meditation or other kind of meditative practices, but can also be exercised in everyday life. And I think that's what's powerful and appealing to me as a psychologist is that you can kind of exercise this muscle of coming back to what is actually happening and opening to what is happening um, in the here and now uh, through more formal meditation practices, but then start to bring that into things as they're actually happening in your life. And it's not uh, sort of completely separated from responding to threats and difficulties uh, as they arise, which include things like, you know, illness or just hearing about things that are threatening, whether it's, uh, you know, currently coronavirus-related things or or other things. And, and also all of the things that come up in your daily life that may be challenging, that may be heightened during this time as well. So in a personal kind of um, conflict or, or uh, loneliness or worries about um, others in your community, that you can bring this this way of responding to uh, to all kinds of things, but especially difficult things, you can bring it to all of that. Mindfulness meditation, if you figure out how to do it in a way that works for you, is an amazing tool for relieving stress and anxiety. But finding ways of relieving stress and anxiety without mindfulness meditation is also really valuable. I think anything that mind a different place to rest that is not about either you know, ruminating about things in the past that might be disturbing or you know looking forward to fearful things in the future and that allow you to, to just care for yourself can be helpful and and it's worth just sampling for yourself what what is it that allows me to come back to my experience in a in a kind of more open way is useful. So, you know, there are guided, guided relaxation kind of exercises that are more uh, focused on um, relaxing the body and, and perhaps the mind. Um, there are cognitive behavioral kinds of strategies that are more focused on identifying and working with the thoughts that are creating anxiety or, or kind of taking you out of what is actually happening. Um, or just finding other things that occupy and absorb you and give you a sense of purpose. So it may be um, caring for someone else or volunteering to do something um, for your community or connecting with other people in your social network, um, however that works now. And I think a lot of people have been um, feeling spurred to connect to people in a, in a different way than they have been. Or even caring for non-human animals. And, and I know a lot of people have been uh, looking to, you know, how they can can connect both with humans and non-humans in their world. Yeah, whatever whatever that is for you, that that kind of brings you back to a sense of this is this is my life, and this is what I can do with it um, in a more purposeful way. So taking a walk, I do that every day with my mom, and sometimes my dog when he's not being lazy. Practicing a musical instrument listening to music, reading a book, whatever else calms you down. 
And there's universal agreement in the psychology community that creating a daily schedule for yourself and keeping it provides comfort. At the very least, it creates continuity, or a semblance of normalcy. Work some sort of physical activity into that routine. Get sunshine and fresh air, six feet apart from other people. Yes, it's uncomfortable and strange in this new reality to walk outside with your face covered and two meter sticks taped together to ward off any who dare cross your space boundary. But do it anyway. And when you get home and have to deal with family you're normally away from because of school, work, or Netflix, Dr. Lawrence had some final advice. I have found, and I'll, I'll say I'm, I'm at home with my husband, my two four-year-old, and a stepdaughter who's 17 and so it it has been a challenging time just having all of us together all the time no way out and I think both toward oneself and toward others that we're around trying to allow extra gentleness extra caring and space for whatever whatever we're going through at any particular time and knowing that that will vary from person to person and moment to moment and that we may hit up against one another um, unpredictably, especially given that we don't have the usual kind of opportunities for getting out and kind of uh, getting away from the situation. And so, you know, just taking that into account and seeing what what can allow each of us to have some sense of the space that we need and and forgiving ourselves and each other for the times that that friction arises and, and knowing that will be part of it. And I think for me it's been useful to just see, you know, how do we do and... Um, Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon. Stay safe. Pandemic COVID-19 is a podcast hosted by me, Maxfield Rivers. I'm also the producer and researcher. I'd like to thank Dr. Heidi Marie Laurent for taking time out of her day to talk to me about meditation. I'd also like to thank you for listening, and I encourage you to share this podcast and leave a review. Stay home if you can, and stay safe.